thousands of people have mysteriously vanished in America's wilderness. Join us as we dive into the deep end of the unexplainable and try to piece together what happened. You are listening to Locations Unknown. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Locations Unknown. I'm your co-host, Joe Irado, and with me, as always, is the guy who first discovered that the dark side of the moon and Wizard of Oz sync up, Mike <laughs> Van de Bogard. Uh, thank you, Joe, and thank you once again to all of our loyal listeners for tuning in. Just a couple announcements before we get going here. First, we'd like to give a shout-out to all of our new Patreon supporters. So we've got CC Butler, Spencer Hansen, Felissa... Aceveto, I don't think I said that Aceveto? right. Yes, Aceveto, maybe. Uh, Megan Lord, <laughs> Nikki Diaz, Trista Shah, Kate Roadnight Brooks, awesome middle name. Yeah. Or second, la- second last <laughs> name, first last name. I don't know. Roadnight. It's late. Uh, Peter Fitzsimmons, uh, Janine Manny, Claire Summers, Alexa Willis, and Lee Dyer. So thank you so much for supporting the show. Yeah, a lot of them. Yeah, well, we've been off for a few weeks. Yeah. So they're piling That's up. What happens when I leave? <laughs> yeah. Um, so thank you once again to all of our loyal listeners for, uh, like I said, tuning in and for our loyal subscribers on Patreon and YouTube memberships. And coming soon, we're going to have a premium subscription on Apple. Uh, basically, you get the same audio content that you would get on Patreon, but, you know, some people don't like to sign up for a bunch of different platforms. So. It doesn't come with all the other benefits, but you just get access to the subscriber-only episodes So oh. in the Apple ecosystem. So app, Apple came up with another way to make more money? <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, stay tuned for that. That should be out soon. And if uh, you want to call the show and leave a voicemail, you can always call 208-391-6913. If your voicemail is funny enough or mean enough, we'll... <laughs> Uh, we'll play Dude, it on an it'll, episode. It'll maybe. definitely get aired. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. for sure, we'll get aired. <laughs> it, it definitely will. So uh, that's all I had, Joe. All right, everybody, let's gear up and get out to explore locations unknown. June 14th, 1969, a young boy is on a camping trip with his family in the Great Smoky Mountains. After a couple of days, the young boys in the trip and the group were playing games around the campfire until one of the children did not return from the woods. Join us this week as we investigate the eerie disappearance of Dennis Martin. conducting at first it's actually a violin (laughs) or or maybe a cello we don't know i don't know it's late so spence field is where the setting is for this story in the great smoky mountain national park uh we're going to give a little bit of facts about uh the great smoky mountains because this area is more of like a campsite would you say um well actually just below this we kind of have a description of what spence field is okay um it's like a highland meadow in the mountains yeah, it's not. Um, it's not the whole thing. So uh, it's it's not five hundred twenty-two thousand acres. No, that's that's, <laughs> that's the, the park. That's the park itself. Yeah, Great Smoky Mountain so, National Park. Yeah. So Spence Field, as Mike said, is a mountain high meadow uh, in the Smoky Mountains. It's located in the southeastern United States. It has an elevation of four thousand nine hundred twenty feet above sea level. Uh, the Appalachian Trail traverses the field actually, and a backcountry shelter just off the trail provides an overnight stop for through hikers. Uh, for those who don't know, through hiking is where you do an entire trail, 
start to finish with no breaks, essentially. So Spence Fields is a crossroads of sorts of the Western Smokies. The Appalachian Trail crosses a field from east to west and is joined by the Boat Mountain Trail from the north and the Eagle Creek Trail from the south. The Boat Mountain Trail connects Spence Field with Cades Cove, Little River Road, and Tremont. The Eagle Creek Trail connects Spence with the Benton McKay Trail and the Fontana Lake. Along the Appalachian Trail, or AT, Thunderhead Mountain is just two miles to the east, and Gregory Bald is just over 10 miles to the west. I uh, I included those in here because to, in the search and rescue operation, we get a lot of detail, and a lot of these names will be mentioned in the the search for Dennis. So I, so there I, will be a test later for the listeners yeah, there will be a where test. all of these places are. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if we didn't say already, this is in Tennessee. Uh, we haven't done a case really this side of the country other than uh, New York. Yeah. Tom Messick. Now you're thinking about it. Yeah. This is like our first East coast case. I wonder is, do you think it's like the visitors or have we just not gotten to cases in this side yet? I think there's just so many national parks in the West half of the U S Yeah, good point. Just more people go missing. Or maybe there's more caves caves. (laughs) (laughs) to go along that whole theory. That's true. Uh, So this park was established on June 15th in 1934. It sees roughly 14,137,000 visitors per year. Uh, That was as of 2020. It is the most visited national park, I believe, in the U.S. I was going to say, that's a huge number. That's the biggest number I think I've seen. So, yeah, the idea of me saying, oh, did not a lot of people go there? Immediately blown (laughs) out of the water. Like, less than a minute after I said that. So. Um, the local census. So there's more than 13,000 members of the East Band of Cherokee Indians that live in a 56,000-acre Kuala boundary, the eastern gateway to the Great Smoky Mountain National Park in North Carolina. Uh, some inter- interesting facts about the Smokies. Uh, the National Park is the most visited national park in the United States. It's just rubbing it in now. Uh, the Smokies are some of the oldest mountains in the world. The Great Smoky Mountains are thought to be between 200 and 300 million years old. Pretty old. That is very old. The Eastern Hellbender Salamander calls the Smoky Mountains home. It's the world's third largest salamander, coming in at 3 to 5 pounds and can live in captivity for as many as 30 years. It's a beast for that's, uh, that's it's heavy for a salamander. For salamanders, yeah. I've held salamanders before. Growing up, we used to get them at my parents' house, but they were like real tiny ones and didn't weigh five pounds. No, I would have gone crazy <laughs> if we had a five pound <laughs> salamander. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, the first settler in the Smoky Mountains was a woman. Although William Ogle is credited with constructing the first home in the area, his spouse Martha Jane Husky Ogle first settled here. Unfortunately, William died before settling into his new home with his wife and children. The Smoky Mountains are home to the only elk herds in the eastern United States. I did not know that. I didn't know that either. I thought there was elk, like, in the Rockies. Well, that's western. Oh, eastern. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It is late. And uh, for those who don't know, I've been in Peru for, like, a week and a half. And it was, uh, my brain's not working. So (laughs) Yeah, it's later than we normally record. Yeah, and and I was late. Mike was waiting outside very nicely. In the cold and rain. Yeah, in his car. (laughs) (laughs) Temperatures have never been recorded above 80 degrees in the national park. That is actually a really cool fact. I did not know that. Yeah, that's another one I didn't know. I've been there in summer, and I guess, yeah, it wasn't that hot. Yeah. (laughs) What is now uh, Great Smoky Mountain National Park was part of the homeland of the Cherokee Indian Tribe. Uh, there is no fee to visit the Smoky Mountain National Park, and there never will be. <laughs> so let's talk about the climate. According to the Copen Climate Classification System, our good buddies over at Copen Climate Classification, <laughs> I've, I'm always going to refer to it like it's a building. Someday we should get someone from the Copen Climate Classification. To <laughs> there come probably the like isn't a thing. Yeah, <laughs> it probably just like is like a system of measurement. Yeah, and there's like not a board or a group of people that determine it, which like is a, how we talk about like it. A bunch of guys in shadows smoking cigars <laughs> yeah, talking about yeah, the climate. Just, like, <laughs> what should we call this climate? <laughs> so our friends over at Copen Climate Classification System Network, uh, the Great Smoky Mountain National Park has two climates types humid subtropical and temperate oceanic uh the humid subtropical air mass typically in place over the smoky mountains produces a large amount of precipitation the annual precipitation range 
is from 50 to 80 inches with heavy winter snowfall in the higher elevations. Flash flooding often occurs after heavy rain, so you got to watch out for that. Yep. Uh, the average highs are in the low to mid seventies and never goes above eighty, or never has. Yeah, and that's in June and you know June through July. June through July, as would be expected. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the summer months. Uh, drops down to low to mid twenties December through March. That's actually not as cold as I thought it might get. Yeah, that's that's not too bad. That might be good for winter uh, hiking and camping. Mm-hmm. Uh, strong damaging winds of eighty to hundred miles an hour uh, or higher occur a few times each year around the Smoky Mountains, mainly during the cool season from October to April as a result of a phenomenon known as mountain waves. Uh, did we talk about those a little bit in our Russian? Um, no, I'm that blanking was on the name. Steve Fawcett, or uh, the uh, Nevada Triangle. Nevada Triangle, that's what it was. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the Russian one was like energy weapons. Yeah. <laughs> a little oh, no, crazier. It was, it was like hurricanes. Yeah. I think they said it was a hurricane, like a land hurricane. So, yeah, something like that. <laughs> it was like, I don't think that's how that works. No. But um, anyway... So strong winds created by mountain waves were a contributing factor in the devastating Gatlinburg fire on November 28th, uh, 2016, uh, during the 2016 Great Smoky Mountain wildfires. Wildfires. <laughs> Damaging winds can also be generated by strong thunderstorms with tornadoes and strong thunderstorm complexes, also known as mesoscale Convective systems. To get real nerdy there. Heck yeah. I'm surprised <laughs> I said that correctly. And I did say it correctly for anyone who says I don't. And those amazing, that terrible great smoke mountain like, wildflower. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> those high winds make those giant wild, the devastating wildflowers. <laughs> like the four people that know how to say that properly, if I said it wrong, no, yeah. one, no one's going to believe them. No. <laughs> and they don't listen to the show. Uh, the terrain. So the elevations of the park range from about 875 feet to 6,600 feet at the summit of Klingman's Dome. Uh, within the park, a total of 16 mountains reach higher than 5,000 feet. I was there, and yeah, they don't have super aggressive ones. And they talk about because they're so old, they've just been worn down. Yeah, it will down. Uh, yeah, like they don't get above usually. I think that the highest one is Klingman's Dome at 6,600. Yeah, they get those high winds and just over the course <laughs> of 100 million years yeah. wear those peaks down a little bit. <clears throat> Uh, the wide range of elevations mimics the latitudinal changes found throughout the entire eastern United States. Ascending the mountains is comparable to a trip from Tennessee to Canada. Plants and animals common in the counties n- northeast uh, found suitable ecological niches in the park's higher elevations, while southern species find home in the balmier lower reaches. Uh, the tallest peaks in the park are Klingman's Dome, as we said, at 6,643 feet. Uh, Mount Gyat. Gy- Yet, get, yeah. I was gonna say that. <laughs> oh, we're gonna get in trouble yeah, for that yeah. one. Someone's oh, gonna be like, oh, "I live at the base of that mountain. It's definitely not pronounced how you pronounced it." <laughs> uh, but anyway, that one's six thousand six hundred twenty-one feet. It is just twenty-two feet short of being the tallest. That's yep. like me. I'm five eleven. I'm never gonna be six feet tall. Nope. Just, just too short to be <laughs> six foot. And Mount Leconte at six thousand five hundred ninety-three feet. So what are the types of dangers we see here? Uh, for animals, black bear is probably going to be at the top of the list. Yeah. Uh, followed by the elk, uh, eastern cottontail rabbit. Vicious. And if you've seen, <laughs> if you've seen uh, Monty Python Search for the Holy Grail, you have no idea what you could be coming across with that rabbit. Yeah. We're going to need the uh, holy hand grenade of Antioch to deal with that one. Uh, the red wolf, uh, groundhog. Red fox, coyotes, bobcats, river otters. We have white-tailed deer, gray fox, wild turkey, wild boar. So I'd say on those two, in that list, I would say if I was going to order the top three, I'd say black bear, wild boar, yeah, and then like a bobcats, yeah, maybe bobcat small. or like I would even say elk. like an elk. Yeah, yeah I'd say an elk. elk. If you piss an elk off, they got some. I'd get gory. Yeah, I mean, probably be more afraid of the elk than. Black bears. I'm sure people get mad at us saying yeah. that, but well, this is an opinion, so yeah. you can get mad at <laughs> yes. an opinion, but it is an opinion. Uh, some other dangers. There's dangerous stream crossings. We talk about this a lot. Um, yeah. You really shouldn't cross waterways unless you're secured somehow. Uh, definitely don't have bags on you. But heavy rains cause very swollen streams that may be unsafe to ford. Uh, so you just got to use good judgment. Do not attempt to cross flooded streams. If your route is blocked by a rain swollen stream, please backtrack and attempt to return. Uh, to the nearest campsite or trailhead. Do not risk your life trying to follow a planned itinerary. This is big. We always say people 
can get swept away in a river. If yeah. you've ever been in a strong current in a river, it can like rip you off your feet. And if you're carrying bags that are strapped to you, yeah. Uh, you might get stuck, and you get hit a strainer point, you can drown. It's not good. And, you know, I mean, if the w- river's wide enough, you know, it, the water level can change pretty quickly if there's just been a massive rain. Oh, yeah. Uh, so you just got to be really careful. Yeah, and it's only got to be, like, knee-deep to really cause you some issues. Yeah. Especially if the water's moving. So And even if you you fall and you don't like, get swept away, you're going to be soaked now. And if it's later in the year, now you got, you know, cold issues to deal with. Oh, yeah. So, so. Just when crossing streams, you wear shoes to protect your feet. Use a stout stick for added support. Unbuckle your straps, your pack, so it can be discarded quickly. Do not try and save your stuff to save yourself. Uh, treat all your drinking water. You can get Giardia. Yes. Uh, you do not want that. It causes you to go number three, which is a combination <laughs> of one and two, uh, which dehydrates you much faster. Yes. Uh, I'm surprised of all the people I met. Like, I've never met a person that calls it that. And I always thought that was like a Number very... three. Yeah. That's pretty funny. If you do one and two, what's one plus two? <laughs> yeah. It's three. Um, and as Mike mentioned, if you get very wet, hypothermia can be an issue. It is a cooler park. It does not get above 80 during the day. So it's going to be cold at night all the time. So you'd be prepared for sudden weather changes. All that heavy precipitation we talked about will get you wet. Uh, even if it is a warm day, as soon as the sun goes down... If you're not dry, you can start losing all that body heat. Especially with the winds in the park. Um, yes. That'll really cool you down. We haven't really talked about that ever, I think, but you're correct. If if you're getting, if it's a windy day, yeah. it's it doesn't matter if it's a little bit warm, that wind will cool you off also. Yep. So encounters with bears. Uh, bears in the park are wild and their behavior is unpredictable. Although extremely rare, attacks on humans have occurred, inflicting serious injuries and death. Just make some noise. Don't be obnoxious, but make yourself known and... Yeah. Black bears are scared little dogs. They will just, you probably won't even see them if you're making enough noise. Yeah. Uh, another thing, this wasn't even in the list, venomous snakes. Yeah. So that wasn't in the list, but there are two species of venomous sma- snakes that live in the snow- Smokies. Oh my gosh, I am having a rough time. <laughs> the northern copperhead and the timber rattlesnake. Although very few snake bites occur here, visitors should be cautious when they place their hands and feet, especially around old buildings and stone fences. So that's a big one, too, because it's cooler. They're going to be out on rocks and pathways more often to get get a little bit of that heat that they can, which is exactly where people are also going to be. So you got to be careful. Yeah. We'll talk about the difficulty. So uh, our good friends over at All Trails, which is a business and they have people there, we know for sure. Yes. Uh, They list over 354 amazing trails to hike in the park uh, with trails that fit every level of experience and conditioning with 52 listed as easy, 149 listed as moderate, and 152 listed as hard. Um, Some significant hazards that you may have to contend with include streams, river crossings, uh, precipitous cliffs, meaning slippery cliffs and ledges, unstable sedimentary rock, some dangerous wildlife, and ever-changing weather, including snowstorms and lightning. Yeah. So to following, uh, the following factors lead to the most backcountry emergencies in the Smokies. If you can avoid these, you'll have a great time. Failure to plan and prepare. These I, are things we always talk about. This is the stuff we always talk <laughs> yeah. about. That's usually number one. Yep. Uh, inadequate footwear, clothing, equipment. These are those city slickers we talk about. Shorts, T-shirts, and sandals with yep. no water, thinking they're going to go hike in the backcountry and it's going to be great. Uh, lack of skill or fitness type for what you're doing. Impaired um, or poor judgment. Sometimes this can be induced by fatigue, exhaustion, or hypothermia. I've or hiked, alcohol. Yeah, that too. <laughs> but I've, I've hiked with some experienced people before that started getting onset hypothermia. They started making some pretty bad decisions. So that, that one can happen to anybody. That's yeah. why you got to make sure you're, you're in good condition at all times. <clears throat> Uh, failure to let family or friends know your uh, plans, your route. What does we always say? Tell people your itinerary. Yes. And you you have a much better chance of getting out alive. Yes. Uh, and failure to keep your hiking party all together. Do not split up. That is by far, if you've listened to our show for, this is our 71st episode, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. probably over 75 to 80% of the cases happen when the person splits off from the hiking group. Yeah, and what's eerie about it is how quickly they go and how short of a distance some of them go and they don't get found. So yeah. uh, hopefully we subsequently scare you enough to not do those things. <laughs> I would really hate to lose a patron supporter. Yes. Because they didn't follow our instructions. I so, would say if you, because if, we care about you, not, if, not for the money. Yeah. If, if there any, <laughs> if you follow these things, you know, it'd be other than like a freak accident, you're very likely to never have, you know, a serious issue out in the back country. Absolutely. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about Dennis Martin. Uh, his date of birth was 620 of 1962. 
Uh, he went missing on June 14th in 1969. So he was young, which is always very sad. Uh, his <laughs> remains were never found. He was a male. So he was six at the time of the disappearance. He was four foot, uh, four foot even and weighed about 55 pounds. He had dark brown and wavy hair, uh, dark brown eyes. And the clothing he was last seen in was a red T-shirt, short green trousers, and a low-cut Oxford shoes with a simple <laughs> heel. What stinks about those color clothing, they blended in the woods pretty dang good. Yeah. Um, even though it wasn't fall, so you don't have to contend with, like, fall colors. But, yeah, green uh, shorts and... Yeah, it's just. I uh, guess red, not so much, but for me being colorblind. That's true. <laughs> that would, you would uh, be bad if you were a searcher. I, I, oh, I could not be a searcher, especially in fall, like with the colors. Yeah. Unless people are wearing bright colors, I would not be very helpful. What 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 colors can't you see? It's called it's red green. Yeah. I think it's called like trypophobia or something like so that. So what do you see? I, I can see bright reds, but yeah. like browns and greens merge together. Purples on the uh, So what purples, does it merge into? Like it's just brown. Oh. I like don't see green. So, Oh, so like green, luscious nature, you just see brown? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But I also don't know what green looks like. So everyone's wow. like, you're missing out. I'm like, but I don't know what I'm missing out of. That is such a trip. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> it's weird. I can see like, uh, I can see green if it's like um, like a highlighter. What about a stoplight? Uh, at night, I know where it's located. Oh, so you know on the bottom. Oh, it's if green. it's flashing yellow. I, I don't know if it's red or if I can go through. <laughs> so I approach stoplights very slowly at night until I can see where it's located. Then I go through. Wow. Yeah. I knew you were colorblind, but I'm just trying to, like, you look outside and green, everything's like the green and the blue sky. It's so calming and you just see brown. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, you know how they say, like, when my dog pees, like, you yeah. get brown spots? It all looks the same. <laughs> so my lawn could be all brown spots from piss. So and you, you I wouldn't just, be a fine. good uh, landscaper. No. You would never know if the grass was alive or dead. No, yeah, no. Well, I mean, if it's yellow, <laughs> yeah. I can see that. If, it, if it's gone to the point where it's unsavable. Unsav- Don't you think there's like a sun, like something they could do, like you could wear a special pair of glasses? Well, that- in fact, they do, and I'd like to bring up our next spot. No, I'm just oh, kidding. Yeah. <laughs> no, they make these glasses that only work in sunny days. Yeah. So I have seen green through these glasses. Oh, so you know what it looks like. Yeah, I know. I know. Okay. Like, I, I know what green looks like because I can see like bright, bright, bright green. Yeah. It's like the nature green that's not super. I haven't seen nature green super bright enough to know that it was like different. Wow. Yeah. It's mind blown. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the personality of, of Dennis, he was quiet. He was a quiet boy, uh, would not call out, but would answer to strangers. So did he have some sort of like mental condition? Uh, yeah, so he he was in a special education group at school, and his mental age was about, um, I, th- I think I meant to write down here, like a year and a half behind his actual A year age. and a half. Okay, yeah. so not too bad, but like when you're six, <clears throat> that's pretty far behind because a lot of development happens in the yeah. early ages. They didn't, they didn't specify what was wrong with him, so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think at that time, I mean, they did not have good mental health, so you're not going to have a good record of it. No. Unfortunately, they weren't always treated very well. So uh, his occupation and hobby was child. child. I love, I love when I you put that. that I know, I love that. It's hilarious. His full time job was being a child. Uh, uh, experience in wilderness is unknown. I would say based on his condition, probably and not, age. Yeah, probably. age and condition, probably not a ton. Yeah, he, I mean, there was six year olds are experienced in the wilderness. Probably not very yeah, many, if yeah. at all. So. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to jump right into the timeline. We don't have a sponsor for this episode. Ooh. Um, save everyone the time. Yeah. Uh, so like Joe said, this the timeline actually starts out on June 13th of 1969. So Dennis Martin, uh, his nine-year-old brother, Doug, his father, a Knoxville architect, Bill Martin, and his grandfather, Clyde Martin, went on a camping trip in Great Smoky Mountains National Park. This was a family tradition that they did every Father's Day weekend. Uh, the family planned to hike through Great Smoky Mountains National Park. The group spent the first night in the Russell Field with uh, Dr. Carter Martin of the Huntsville, Alabama, and his two sons. The first day in the park went without a problem. No issues. Uh, it is now Sunday, uh, June 14th, 1969. So on the second day of the trip, the Martins hiked to Spence Field and met with friends and extended family. At around 3 p.m., there were also conflicting reports that this was closer to 4.30 p.m., but, you know, between 3 and 4 p.m., the children decided to pull a prank on the adults, and they hid behind some bushes 
to surprise them kind of just off into the trees. Uh, three of the boys hid together while Dennis went in another direction. It wasn't very long before uh, the boys emerged from their hiding spots to scare the adults, but they soon noticed that Dennis didn't come out from his hiding spot. His father immediately scoured the area looking for the boy and called out his name, but there was no response. Now, this was less than five minutes, so they ran into the bushes to hide. In less than five minutes, the boys came out, and Dennis was gone. And so they saw which direction he ran. He didn't they, go with the other boys, but he ran in, in a... Yeah, they saw where he went. They knew what direction he ran in, and within five minutes, the parents, um, all the adult men in the group, split up and started searching for him. Like five minutes after, like that's, you think about a five, a six year old kid. How far could they get in the woods in five minutes? Yeah, like could they go far enough where they wouldn't hear you yelling? I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think an adult could like running. Yeah, but like if they're trying to get away. I, I, I just think of, like, my own kids at six, they'd be too scared to go too far. Yeah. Without anyone there. So, I mean, that is the first really puzzling part of this is, you know, less than five minutes passes and Dennis is already missing and he's something happened to the point where he's far enough away that he can't hear his dad yelling. Yeah. So uh, the adults quickly searched the nearby forest, hiking up and down several trails looking for Dennis. William covered miles of trails frantically calling for Dennis. Without radios or any way to communicate in 1969, no cell phones, mm -hmm. uh, with the outside world, the Martins came up with a plan. Clyde, uh, the grandfather, hiked nine miles to, Cade, to the Cades, Code, Cades Cove Ranger Station for help. Uh, unfortunately, that night, a really bad thunderstorm moved in, uh, and in a matter of hours, the storm dropped three inches of rain on the Smoky Mountains, washing out trails and leaving what they suspect no evidence of Dennis whose footprints would have been swept away. So that is the first kind of bad news in this whole case is that, of course, the night he's missing, a terrible storm moves in, three inches of rain gets dropped. Yeah. In an area that's prone to flash flooding, and any evidence of Dennis would have been washed away. Um, so that is the first kind of uh, wrinkle in this case. So it is now... Uh, what did I say? The 14th was Saturday. So now it's Sunday, June 15th, 1969 at 5 a.m. This is when the search kicks off. So we could say Dennis went missing, mm, what, 3 p.m., 3.30 p.m., and 5 a.m. the next morning, the search is already starting. So the National Park Service put together a crew of 30. The search party that day quickly swelled to 240 people as volunteers poured in. And Joe is showing some um, pictures from the search and rescue. The really interesting uh, thing about this case is how many people ended up searching for Dennis. We'll get into the, I'm going to go into the search and rescue in detail because the National Park Service actually released a very detailed documents on the search, probably through a FOIA request. And yeah. There's even there's a lot more detail that I just couldn't put into the episode because it would have taken us you know five hours to go through it. But so I'm trying to I'm gonna try and hit the bullet points of the search and rescue. I think normally we wouldn't go into the search in this kind of fashion, but uh, this was the largest search in national park history. Well, even still, these, these pictures that like was a well documented imagery <coughs> for that time. Yeah, and we, we don't see a lot of these types of pictures in here. No. And when we do these cases that are that old. And actually, this case spurred, this case was kind of the reason why the National Park Service kind of started changing how they did search and rescue operations. We'll get into why later on. But so like I said, the first day of the search happened June 15th, 1969. And we already have 240 volunteers searching. The search party included park rangers, college, college students, firefighters, Boy Scouts, police, and actually 60 Green Berets. <laughs> so they had special forces there as well. Uh, but without a clear without clear directions or an organizational plan, the searches crossed the National Park looking for evidence. Experienced MPS personnel and other experienced persons began uh, a drainage search down the west prong of the Little River, Anthony Creek, Little Bald, and Spence Field drainages. The trail search continued with two visitor horse parties going up Anthony Creek, one on the trail to Spence Field, uh, the other on Ledbetter Ridge Trail to Russell Field. 30 Boy Scouts camped at Derrick Knob, 
walked the walked west on the AT to Spence, and eight Boy Scouts camped at Russell Field. Walked down Jenkins Ridge Trail. So, well, they had like Boy Scouts involved. They like just threw like the whole. Yeah, you're gonna get the, the impression that um, a lot of people wanted to help, but you've got a lot of really inexperienced people in search and rescue looking for Dennis, which in the end will hamper, I believe, the the operation itself. Yeah. Um, I'm also going to reference, because I pulled a lot of this from the MPS document, we're going to reference a lot of different ranger names. Um, they're not necessarily important to the case, but they just there's so many MPS officials working on this case. So Ranger Nichols contacted 51 ranger students from Lake City, Florida Junior College who were on a field trip near Franklin, North Carolina, and directed them to the area. Nine Jeeps. We have four Ranger Ranger Jeeps, two maintenance Jeeps, and three JCCC Jeeps, which I'm not sure what those are. Um, we're all joining the search and you know driving the trails and off-road trails that they could. So it is now June 16th, 1969. It's a Monday. So trail and drainage searches continued. Uh, areas covered pre- previously were checked again, especially the immediate drainages from Spence Field. Rangers Ness, Nel, Nielsen and Huffman took several rescue squad personnel into the brush and began a grid pattern search at the Spencefield area. The Tennessee Air National Guard 134th Air Rifle Group, McGee Tyson Air Force Base from Knoxville, Tennessee, sent 17 men to Cades Cove. They actually ended up establishing a heliport at Cades Cove in the uh, field immediately west of the sewage disposal area. Here's a JCCC Jeep. Okay. It is a um, Jamaican classic car club. Weird. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> that's JCCC Jeep, but I, maybe that's something different. Like that's a club that collects these things, but that's, what, that's, what, just that's a, what popped up. It looks like an old military Jeep. Yeah, that might be what it is. Yeah. So uh, so like I said, they, they already had a heliport established at Cades Cove. I mean, they really treated this like a military operation when, you, when we get into – all the details of the search. So the Cades Cove, uh, Cades Cove Ranger Station received hundreds of offers from individuals and organized groups interested in searching for Dennis. Jeeps, portable radios, maps, and bloodhounds were among the offers. Many people having dogs were told to try their animals. A few did arrive but were unable to get any results. The heavy rains from the first night were thought to be a factor. So after this day, total searches in the field swelled to 300 uh, which included MPS, rescue squads, Air National Guard, volunteers, and student foresters. Moving on to Tuesday, June 17, 1969, uh, Ranger Foster began an intensive grid search at Spence Field with the 50 students from the Lake City Junior College from Florida. Trail searching also continued and extended out of probable areas into possible areas. All possibilities were checked as manpower was available. Anthony Creek and other Spence Field drainages were covered and recovered as they were every day. So they had so many people on this search that they were recovering spots that they had searched every day. That's oh. that's actually not I, I think that's not a bad thing. No, it just shows you how much manpower they had. Yeah. Um Special Forces Green Berets were assigned to the Eagle Creek and Jenkins Ridge Trail area. Fifty Tennessee Air National Guard arrived to arrived to join the grid search at Spence Field. The U.S. Coast Guard had men and boats patrolling Fontana Lake. They patrolled the north shoreline of the lake and transported searchers uh, to the trails and drainages on the north shore. Total searchers in the field this day topped 365 and included MPS, rescue squad, student foresters, the Tennessee Air National Guard, Maryville, Tennessee Volunteer Fire Department, Air Base personnel, U.S. Army pilots and crews, volunteers, and now special forces. So, and we're not even halfway to the, the high water mark for searchers in this Jeez. case. So uh, let's move forward to <clears throat> Wednesday. So June 18th, 1969. Uh, rain from the previous night, so it rained again, created more difficulty with vehicle travel, and helicopters were limited during the day due to cloud cover. In all, on this day, four helicopters were, were used, two Hueys and two CH-59s. Um, and Hueys, I'm trying to think... Uh, I think this is it. Is that what's it say in the caption? It calls it the Jolly Green Giant. Jolly Green Giant. But I feel like that's that's like the Nam helicopter. Huey was the Nam helicopter, I think. That's yeah. what I'm saying. That looks like that. Oh no, that I don't Google it. I am. <laughs> Give me a second. That 
Because, yeah, the movie uh, Full Metal Jacket, I think, that scene where they're flying. I was thinking of Tropic Thunder. <laughs> or that. <laughs> um, so while Joe looks for uh, the Yeah, that's a, that's a Huey. Oh. Here, see? Okay, yeah. A little bit different. Because then this one's like a... That one's... That one's like an old-timey helicopter. Yeah, it looks like a bell almost. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, the grid search continued with utilization of total Air National, uh, Air National Guard Forces number 97 troops. The trail drainage, ridgetops, ridge contours, lakeshore, and other extensive areas were searched. A U-10, this is interesting, a U-10 fixed-wing aircraft was made available with a loudspeaker system installed. The plane was for Mr. Martin oh, to fly. Hold on, hold on. Oh. That, that's a CH-59. Oh. Look at that. Okay. Yeah, I have no idea. what the, They only said four. This one was clearly involved. Well, there were more helicopters in, in the next couple of days. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. This was just on that Wednesday. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, like I said, a U-10 fixed-wing aircraft was made available with a loudspeaker system installed. The plan was for Mr. Martin to fly over the area and call the boy's name on the loudspeaker and give some simple instructions on how to make contact with some of the searchers. However, upon landing in the cove, the rear landing gear struck a rock and knocked it through the rear stabilizer, rendering the the aircraft unusable. Uh, After repairs were made, it had to return to base. Uh, 22 more special forces arrived this day as well. Total searchers now in the field were uh, at 615. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah. That's so many people. Yeah. So we're moving to Thursday now, June uh, 19th of 1969. That's like almost too many people if the kid is calling out. Yeah. Like helicopters, people, like Dogs, how would you know? Horses. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, so the search continued uh, extensively. Animal excrement was checked. Pit toilets at trail shelters and fire towers were checked. Buzzards were watched, all with no traces of young uh, Dennis. Uh, I just found that entries, buzzards were watched. So they were like... Yeah, see if they're circling? Circling a carcass or something. Um, so the chief ranger had telephone uh, contact with Major uh, Schnuber of the Eastern Air Rescue Service and learned that three more helicopters had been approved. The airborne infrared sensing device was discussed... Uh, but this was later dismissed as ineffective in this case. So that might have been an early version of uh, like a f- FLIR-type device. Mm-hmm. Uh, total searchers in the field this day totaled 690. So we're, we're still going up. Uh, moving to Friday, June 20th, 1969. So the massive search continued with an additional 200 Tennessee Air National Guardsmen Holy cow. on summer camp at Shelby, Mississippi. Uh, by the end of this day, there were over 780 people in the field searching for Dennis now. Um, so we are now fast-forwarding to June 21st of 1969. Total searchers in the field this day topped 1,400. <laughs> what, what is the area they're covering? Well, I'll get into that um, in just a second here. So at this point, officials now are like, all right, we've got too many people out in the field. Uh, so... Uh, the chief ranger requested the communications officer to call local radio and TV stations to request that no more searchers show up as of 10 a.m. So from what I read, roads are getting clogged. Um, you've got so many inexperienced people just stomping around out there. People started getting hurt. So, I mean, 1,400 is, can you imagine? I mean. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a ridiculous amount of people in that area. Yeah, so uh, we're moving to. Uh, the 22nd of June. So based on horizontal map computations, the general coverage area of the search had reached almost 57 square miles. The intensive coverage area had reached 12.5 square miles. So they had searched almost 16 square miles and it found nothing Wow! with 1,400 people. Um, so it said the, uh, the logical search area had been reached. Nothing at all had been found. The decision was made to redeploy searches again in the morning of June 23rd. Search groups would start from Spence Field where the boy was lost and recover the area. Recover uh, the area. So total searches in the field this day dropped down to 1,000. <laughs> What's so. funny is before we got to that point, I was thinking, I'm like, why don't they just send every one of those people in the exact same route the kid went and all yeah. take a little bit of a different route? Just like walk arm in arm and just go like, in a line. Yes. <laughs> like at that point, right. like you'd cover so much ground. Yeah. So it's now June 23rd, 1969. The level of volunteers dropped considerably as it was anticipated. 
Searchers were allowed to drive their personal vehicles to the campground parking lot. Heavy rains had moved in and curtailed the search efforts for a major part of the day. Uh, they did get a police dog from the Spartanburg, South Carolina Police Department, uh, which was used, but again, yeah, no like results. four days of rain almost yeah. at that point. It's, they're not going to have anything. So total searchers in the field now has dropped down to 427. So they've lost a, a good chunk, but still 427 is That's a, lot of a huge amount for a search party. Uh, it is now June 24th, 1969. This was when they thought they may have had a clue on, or they may have found Dennis. So a young boy wearing similar clothes to Dennis was walking the perimeter road of Cades Cove campground, but rangers learned this was actually Michael Devlin, unrelated to the case or search, and they asked him to change his shirt. <laughs> yeah, they have like 482 reports that they found him. Yeah. So uh, MPS staff had proposed at this point putting the search operation into maintenance mode on June 29th. Total searchers in the field had inched back up to 482. It is now uh, June 25th, 1969. 33 special forces had left the search. The remaining 38 were planning to leave the morning of June 26th. Three helicopters also left the search. The remaining one planned to stay until June 29th. So you can see the search is kind of winding down. Um, on this day as well, all Tennessee National Guard troops had left. Superintendent Fry said in a press release that the search operation would, will be greatly reduced as of June 26th. All NPS personnel now on the search, uh, which was about 75, will continue through Sunday, June 29th. If the boy is not found by this time, the search will continue to a limited basis for the next 60 days. Uh, total searchers in the field had now dropped to 403 that day. Uh, June 26, 1969, another, what they thought at the time was a break in the case. Search crews checked a report of a decaying odor near the park line at the Tremont traffic counter. This turned out to be a dog carcass. Uh, several reports of odors had come in throughout the search. A few were located and all turned out to be bodies of small animals. So, um, you know, it, it's got to be frustrating when yeah. you think you might have found something and then uh, it, it turns out to be a dead animal or uh, but total searchers in the field now had dropped down to 121. So the, the search is really starting to dry up. It is now June 27th of 1969, a Friday. Rangers learned that Ed, uh, Mr. Ed Crabtree, one of Martin's neighbors who had been in uh, company with Mr. Martin on the search, had telephoned Tennessee Senator Howard Baker asking for 300 federal troops to be used next week. The regional office indicated that the search operation effort had been publicly significant to the extent that officials at the White House had been in contact with the National Park Service on this search. Oh, wow. So it made it all the way up to the White House at that point. And I, who was the president in 1969? Is that Kennedy? Looking it up right now. I started looking at uh, Nixon. <laughs> Nixon. Yeah. Ken, no, Ken, Ken, <laughs> I know that. Kennedy was not president in 1969. <laughs> Nope, because Nixon was. Yeah, <laughs> it's late. <laughs> um, so total searchers in the field at this point had dropped down to ninety or to uh, sixty-eight. Uh, Saturday, June twenty-eighth, nineteen sixty-nine. Uh, don't have a lot on this day, but uh, the searchers in the field increased up to one hundred ninety-six. So June twenty-ninth is kind of when the official search really ended. At 5 p.m., a meeting was held at the Cades Cove Operations Center with the Martin family. FBI agents and NPS officials were present. It was kind of a where-do-we-go-from-here type of meeting. Uh, they determined that in the absence of evidence to support kidnapping, the FBI could not launch a full-scale investigation. So they were really pushing the FBI to get involved. Mm. But um, they, they can't commit resources unless they have some well, kind of... At that point, what, what would they do differently? Yeah. What would they do different than the 1,400 people that were searching? Yeah. Uh, so on June 29th, 1969, the operation was closed down at Spence Field around 6 p.m., and all searchers had left the field. So like I said, these numbers are mind-blowing. Um, like I said, this was the was and is the largest search that's ever happened in National Park history. So listen to some of these numbers. Total man hours topped 13,420. Total man days topped 1,677. The cost of the search was $50,584, which in today's money, 
Now, this one was shocking to me, $408,000. I would have guessed it would have been way more expensive. Yeah, it's still, I think, the most expensive search, if, like, not relative time, but relative money. Yeah. Because I think the one we had, which is, they say is the most expensive one in National Park history, wasn't it like $250,000 or something like that? It was I, like quarter of a million dollars. Yeah. And we were like, wow, that's crazy. This is double that. Yeah. Just not in today's money. Yeah, so total... <clears throat> Uh, total U.S. Army helicopter sorties, 938. Air Force helicopter sorties, 78. Total number of people airlifted, almost 13,000. Jeez. Total cargo transported by helicopter, almost 24,000 pounds. Uh, total searches done by Jeeps were estimated to be 1,800 to 2,000. There were over 57 different rescue squads participating um, and the rescue squads had a total of almost 70,000 vehicle miles after the search. Jeez. So I at mean, that point, you'd wonder like how many searchers got lost or injured or like, what was the toll taken? Well, there were, uh, there were several actual injuries. Uh, I didn't list them in here, but one guy had fallen and broken his arm. Uh, another guy had two of them happened at camp. One guy cut his leg open really bad whittling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sounds like. Something we would do. And one of the older guys slipped and fell and, like, hit his head on a Jeep. So, Because like, <laughs> there are just hundreds of Jeeps yeah. everywhere. Yeah. You just, like, slip and just hit There's, a Jeep. Yeah. God. <laughs> he slipped so. and hit his head on a Jeep. Um, <laughs> just chaos. I know. Just, just people whittling and cutting themselves, yeah. breaking their arms, just pure. Yeah. Like the site leaders probably just at the one day where he's like, stop setting people. Yeah. Uh, so just be here. before we get into theories, there were some false positives during the search that I found really interesting. So several days into the search, two men from Townsend noticed a shoe print near the West prong of the pigeon river. Uh, it was the size of a child's Oxford type shoe, which Dennis Martin was last seen wearing. Uh, Dwight McCarter, a retired Park Service ranger who was um, on the search, said this lead was not fully followed up because searchers had already been in the area. McCarter said that at the time he was only 24 years old and still learning from senior rangers and other mentors. Today, he says the two things he most wishes would have happened were uh, massive searches of the area where the print was found and of the Sea Branch area where the scream was heard and the rough-looking man was seen. So uh, we'll get into that whole scenario in just a second. But McCarter would go on to say that the Sea Branch area is downhill from where Dennis was last seen and is possible for a physically fit man to carry a small boy between the two points. Perhaps more significantly, Dennis Martin could have reached that location alone. McCarter also goes on to cite several other reasons why the massive search could have missed Dennis or his body. He said that a 48-inch tall boy could easily elude detection in rugged mountain terrain, and especially in a road uh, How do you say that? Mm, hold on. I'm trying to find where you're at. Um, click, my, click my circle. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Rhododendron. Rhododendron. Oh, man. Or a laurel thicket. I actually know that one. The sound of, roaring, uh, sound of a roaring creek can prevent a searcher from hearing a child's shouts for help, and in some cases, lost and disorientated children have been known to hide from searchers. He also goes on to say, uh, as for an animal attack, that is possible. Bears normally will not attack humans, but in June of 1969, their normal food source was greatly diminished, and near Spence Field, about two weeks before Dennis disappeared, uh, Rangers released a bony, scrawny bear caught in, the wild, uh, caught in a wild boar trap uh, baited with corn, something that bears normally do not eat. That's uh, rhododendron flowers right there. Okay. Now, um, you could get lost in that, but you could also get lost in that one. Wow. <laughs> I don't know if those are that big in the mountain, but that is... Uh, That's for those listening, we're looking at a rhododendron bush that is... I don't know if that guy's... Size of a house? Yeah, if that guy's six feet tall, that's that's bigger than house maybe or yeah no it's probably about the size of an entire house yeah so yeah you could get lost in that so you definitely could uh interesting yeah so the bears in the area could have been really hungry because they're kind of starving that june so that is a possibility that he was attacked by a black bear i mean a small child 
would be an easy target. I would for say a that's a higher possibility bear. because of his size. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of some false positives during the case. We have some weird things going on years later after the case. So a few years after Dennis was last seen, a man came across skeletal remains of a small child in Tremont's Big Hollow. The bones included his skull and were already being scattered by animals. The man kept the find to himself for years because he had been illegally hunting ginseng and feared he would be prosecuted. In 1985, he contacted McCarter, who we just talked about, who he knew personally, and told him about the skeleton. McCarter and 30 volunteer rescue squadmen from Swain County, North Carolina, searched the area but found nothing. By this time, they suspected animals would have had more than enough time to destroy the remains. Uh, the area is about three to three and a half miles downhill from where Dennis was last seen and in the same direction as the Oxford shoe print found by the West Prong uh, uh, River, McCarter said. And he said uh, it's about nine miles from where the scream and unkempt man were reported. So um, there was also about 16 years ago. There's a lot of uh, things pointing in that direction. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to get into uh, that scream here in just a second. Okay. I, I couldn't find a good spot to to right. put that in. But right. um, they also had about 16 years ago, a man searching for his birth parents contacted park officials to explore the possibility that he might be Dennis Martin. <laughs> um, uh, park spokesman, spokesman Bob Miller said, Miller does not recall what made the man think he might be Dennis Martin. But after a quick comparison of the known facts of the man's life, with those of Dennis Martin's, Miller said we were able to put rest, uh, put to rest the suspicion that he was Dennis Martin. Well, I shouldn't be so quick to giggle at that because if he did have some sort of mental condition, that yeah. could explain it. So if he was aware of in his adult life, hey, I have this mental condition, like maybe I completely forgot about it or yes, yeah. if he was like an orphan or something like that. So I guess I shouldn't laugh it off right away. No, I mean, it's uh, you never know. But, you know, they followed up on it because this is still an open case to this day. I just think of that TV show where they, they – remember that TV show was on MTV where girls didn't know they were pregnant until they were having a baby? <laughs> no, I don't remember I that. think it was called, like, I Didn't Know I Was Pregnant. Very creative with the name. Yeah, it was, it was something <laughs> – I'm going to look that up now because – but it was literally a show where it's like they went into some hysteria level where they just thought they were large or something like that, and yeah. then they, like – had stomach pain, and they went to the hospital, and they're like, uh, you're delivering a baby right now. It was like a bunch of stories of people like that. I'm like, can you imagine? Yeah. So that guy thinking he might be that lost kid. Oh, uh, yeah, mm. you never know. So after this whole search and rescue debacle, the National Park Service kind of did a, a review of everything that happened, and they released a report. And the next couple of statements uh, were about why they – they think Dennis was never found and kind of pointing to the chaotic search for him. Mm -hmm. So the main theme of their report was sometimes too much of a good thing can cause problems. Um, they write, uh, <laughs> like hitting your head in Jeeps and yeah, <laughs> cutting yourself. Also whittling. the show is called, I didn't know I was pregnant. Oh, so interesting. Yeah. Um, don't, so, don't watch it. It's not, no, I, I won't. <laughs> um, so as the search began, this is from the, the National Park Service memo. Everyone kept feeling uh, that the boy would be found in the next hour. And it was probably this reason why the search organization did not keep pace with the rapid manpower buildup. Park Superintendent Keith Nielsen wrote, this search, this search developed so fast that we failed to realize the need for quick organization from the standpoint of manpower overhead and public relations. The large numbers of people would have overlapped or even obliterated new clues or signs of the missing boy. There oh. were so many footprints, a mass confusion of footprints, McCarter said. The size and scope of the Martin search produced many lessons that led to improvements of future searches. It's the old adage of it being better to work smarter, not harder, Park Deputy Superintendent Kevin Fitzgerald said. We learned that flooding an area with huge numbers of people is not the way to go in all cases because you tend to lose some valuable clues and good tracking signals. Authorities also learned how to more efficiently manage searches. In 1972, in Utah, a loosely knit group of search and rescue workers formed a fledgling organization that became the National Association of Search and Rescue, now recognized internationally as a leading conduit for exchanging information and developing new methods. Though it was not a direct outgrowth of the Dennis Martin case, lessons learned from the search for him quickly made their way into 
the NASAR guidelines, McCarter said. So it is pretty cool that, uh, sadly, they didn't find Dennis, but his that chaotic search actually led to officials creating better methods for searching for people, which probably led to a lot of other people being found. Yeah, the silver lining of a terrible event. <clears throat> yeah. So, all right, jumping right into theories. Okay. This is the fun part. So, right away, law enforcement thinks, this is what park officials and law enforcement thinks, they think he fell victim to hypothermia from the heavy thunderstorm and cold temperatures uh, that swept through the night he disappeared. The area where Martin disappeared is marked by steep slopes and ravines. Wild animals such as copperhead snakes, bears, feral hogs, and bobcats inhabit the area. A downpour broke out shortly after Martin uh, disappeared, dropping three inches of rain in a matter of hours, which washed out trails and caused streams to flood. Temperatures that night on June 14th dropped down to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. So I think... If we're looking at plausible theories, I think that is probably the most plausible that mm-hmm. he died of hypothermia and then got washed away in the huge storm. Family, what does family think? So the family came to believe that someone took Dennis. Uh, the, the afternoon that Dennis disappeared, Harold Key, 45 of Carthage, Tennessee, was near Rowan's Creek in the Sea Branch area with his family when he heard an enormous sickening scream. A few minutes later, he noticed a rough-looking man moving stealthily in the woods near where he had heard the scream. He said, I thought he might have been a moonshiner, Key later told New Sentinel writer Carson Brewer. Unaware of the search for the lost boy, Key did not report the incident until several days later, and he had returned home and learned of Dennis, Dennis's disappearance. But Key did not recall the exact time this occurred, and part of the time frame he gave included a period that would have made a connection to Dennis Martin's disappearance impossible. Park officials also discounted the likelihood of a connection because of the distance from where Dennis was last seen, which we said was about nine miles, and the FBI concluded it did not have sufficient evidence to launch an investigation. So very creepy, this weird scream this guy heard, but, you know, they at the time didn't think uh, it could have any connection to the disappearance, but I just feel like, I think there's something there that they overlooked. Yeah, and with, you know, the guy's foggy recollection of the actual time of the scream, I mean. Well, and you, uh, <laughs> all right, f- finish it, because I have theories on that. Oh, let's let's okay. go through the rest of them, and then, and then let's, yeah, I want to so, jump ahead. Here's the media opinions. So the first is that he, like we said, simply got disorientated and perished in the rugged terrain. Yes. Uh, second theory was. Disoriented? What did I say? Disorientated. Oh, darn it. I've done that before. <laughs> You've done that before. Yeah. <laughs> darn it. I'll have to work on my pronunciation. Pronunciation of, in it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the second leading theory was that he was attacked by uh, one of the hungry bears just because they were short on their normal food supply that summer. Mm-hmm. Um, less likely was he might have been attacked by a feral pig, which can be very, um, they can be mean, especially if you're a small child. Mm-hmm. Um the third theory was that he was abducted by someone in the woods waiting for him or someone that was on the search team found him and abducted him. So, I mean, I could see that happening with so many different strange people coming into the search. Like, they didn't do, I don't think they, you know, 1,400 people, there's no way they were, you know, checking backgrounds of people and making sure, like, yeah. some of these people aren't, you know, predators. So I could ha, could someone have found Dennis maybe injured and then they abducted him? The only you know devil's advocate that is there's 1,400 people in the woods. Could you have gotten away with that? Yeah, <laughs> like would you be able to pull him out of the woods without making a sound or without doing anyone noticing? Yeah, that probably seems highly unlikely. Yeah. So the deep end theory, and this is not my theory. This is a theory that a lot of conspiracy people on the internet have come up with feral humans Ooh, and nothing's more reliable than people <laughs> yeah. on the internet. So feral humans, you said, yeah, like feral hogs, but humans, humans. yeah. So <laughs> one of the most popular theories involved wild men, other otherwise known as feral humans who live in the mountains and go about snatching livestock and children at night. These wild men are Do said have, to, like hooves for feet. Yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, these wild men are said to be cannibalistic and live in secret colonies within the park. Some say this would explain why nothing of Dennis was ever found. Okay. All right. People believe there are humans who lived, 
who have lived in the wild so long they are closer to beasts than men. Some believe they have their own language and apparently quite a putrid smell that forewarns of their arrival, which is just, uh, oh, what? Just, just ineffective feraling, if you ask me. Yeah. Um, so, uh, do, uh, do they have big feet? <laughs> the hobbits. B- big foot. This is even, this is the, the crazier thing. If you want to believe the feral, the feral human uh, theory, Many even go as far to say that the special forces got deployed on this search not to help find Dennis, but to hunt down the feral humans. Um, but many go on to say if they were hunting feral people, they would have been armed, which everyone reported that the special forces in the search were unarmed. Oh, so, from what they could tell. From what they could tell. But I mean, they're green berets. You don't they're highly trained knives. in hand-to-hand combat, yeah. too. So um, that's the off-the-deep-end theory that people have been running with for this disappearance. So... I'll kick it off to you. What do you think happened? So I'll just say most likely, if if I'm not going to go down like the Hollywood or deep end, I'd say most likely is he got disoriented and perished in the woods. Yeah. And for whatever reason, they didn't stumble across his body. Um, if it was heavily wooded, rugged, we saw some of those bushes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a lot of people, but it's also a lot of area. Yep. You think of when you look around the woods, like all the places you could walk and how long it would take you to walk in all those places. Yeah. So, and the farther he goes out, the more spread out that search gets. So that's, I'd say the most likely. The second one, which I do believe is really close to that, is that he was taken. And I know we have one, like, uh, eyewitness to this scream and this guy. Yeah. And I know it was far away, but is it possible he was abducted closer to where he went lost and that guy brought him that yeah. way and that's where he crossed paths with this guy and maybe he was screaming the whole time or every now and then and he just heard it then so i don't look at it like oh this was nine miles away there's no way he could have done that in maybe an hour yeah because he said it was afternoon but what if he was kidnapped and brought there in a vehicle well that retired uh ranger who was on the search said he wishes that they would have investigated that second possibility more because he He's, he said that it would have been possible for a physically fit man to carry a small boy between the two points. Yeah. Um, uh, especially if it was a feral man. Yeah. And he, he also said again that he thought Dennis Martin could have reached that location alone. So, yeah, I think... And people's recollection of time is terrible. Especially if you're out in the woods. Especially out in the woods. So if he just said afternoon... And, you know, how do we know even Dennis, they, we say he went messing at three. Yeah. Maybe it was earlier than that. And they thought it was three. Maybe they had a watch, whatever. Yeah. But if the guy didn't reckon, if he said oh, it was afternoon, well, that's like a five-hour window. Yeah. You could travel nine nine miles in five hours. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, no, I think those are, that's a good theory. I think, I think my leading theory combines um, one and two of the the normal theories. So, I think he did wander off and maybe he got a little too, he got separated from the group and maybe he fell or something happened. And he was scared and he was hiding and he didn't want to come out. And then that storm hit because they said the storm hit not too far after he went missing and maybe he perished in that storm, but then his remains, a bear or a bobcat or an animal got the remains and they cause they found that skeleton Kind of near where those shoe prints were found. Okay, so they didn't test that. They have no way to know if that's him. No, so the guy found the skeleton and was afraid of being prosecuted for poaching or for illegally hunting ginseng. <laughs> and when they went back to look for the bones in 1985, they were gone. So, oh. so yeah, that, that could have been Dennis. And that would have made sense if he had perished that night in the storm his body got washed away, and then he was, you know... You know, I forgot about that. I would say that'd be before even the kidnapping. Yeah, and the predators then were so hungry, they, you know, instantly, as soon as the water dried up, you know, dispersed the bones. Sure. Um, I think, yeah, maybe maybe that scream has something to do with his disappearance. Maybe one of the searchers took him. I just think it would be really hard with that many people... Though in the early days, there weren't that many in the field. There were just a couple hundred. So the, the 1,400 okay. people didn't ramp up until like yeah, a like week later. Yeah, like if someone in the search crew took him, it could have been in the early initial. Yeah, like the initial day. Hmm. Maybe they found him injured and somehow got him out of there. But 
Um, I still don't think that's as likely. I think he really probably was injured, and then the, the storm washed him away, and then, you know, Bears or yeah. Bobcats got I think him. that's definitely the most plausible. Yeah. And if not, it was uh, feral humans. Yeah. That's <laughs> definitely off the deep end for sure. Yeah. And it's just kind of funny. Like, that is the running theory for a lot of, a lot of people on the internet. So... Um, any final thoughts on this one? No, no, I think, I think those are the most plausible. I think, uh, I I don't know. I think I'm just on the size of the search. The size of the search is pretty crazy, especially because they found nothing except for the shoe print, which they wrote off, which they probably shouldn't have. But outside of that, I don't know. You guys tell us on social media, let us know what you think. Uh, but thanks again for tuning into our show. We appreciate you all for listening and sharing locations unknown with your friends and family. Be sure to like us and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, Be sure to follow us on YouTube channels. You can actually see what we're talking about and subscribe to our show. Uh, Subscribe there as well to get all of our other video content. Uh, If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can visit our Facebook store and buy some cool swag. Otherwise, you can donate to our Patreon account. You can sign up for the uh, subscriptions on YouTube. And soon you can also subscribe at Apple where you'll get extra content uh, like everywhere else. So if you love our show and would like to hear more and you aren't subscribed, we have, what, like 32 more episodes behind a paywall. 27. 27 more episodes (laughs) behind a paywall. 32 shortly. Yeah. With more people subscribing that you can come and uh, enjoy some of the other things we've talked about. And just remember, when enjoying the beauty of nature, whether backpacking, camping, or simply taking a walk, always remember to leave no trace. Thanks, and we will see you all next time.